0: Hi, friends. Doug Pratt from First Church in Bonita Springs. Welcome to a two-part series of discussions on what I will label the blunders of the secular mind. The secular mind is the set of values and beliefs that make up a worldview or perspective that has become dominant in our Western culture. Most of our leaders in education, media, entertainment, politics, and law share this set of assumptions. Assumptions which have largely replaced the consensus that prevailed in the Western world for many centuries that was founded on a Christian worldview. And I'm convinced those assumptions controlling our society today are fatally flawed and dangerous, causing most of the problems that confront us. I'm calling these mistaken views and values blunders because they are self-inflicted mistakes. It's, of course, possible to make honest mistakes that are caused by having faulty data, inaccurate facts, or incomplete knowledge, and those mistakes are not blunders. A blunder is caused when the truth is available but ignored, or when false data is willingly substituted for accurate information. When individuals or groups commit such blunders, they are morally responsible for the consequences of their mistakes, and those who can see the truth have an obligation to point out the errors and reaffirm what is correct. The highest and best sources of truth are, number one, the Word of God, our Creator's revelation to provide light and guidance to mankind. In particular, the Bible's accurate and timely insights into unchanging human nature. And the second great source of truth is the objective world that can be discovered and understood through unbiased research and clear rational thinking whether that truth comes from natural sciences, history, social sciences, or other sources. And now a necessary disclaimer. I will not be talking about politics in the narrowest sense. It has been my personal policy as a pastor to never publicly endorse any party or candidate, even though I have my own personal preferences, which I will discuss with individuals privately. Parties and candidates and issues and events are constantly changing. A political preference one year may become outdated and altered the next year. The thoughts I am sharing with you in this series are not meant to deal with the immediate controversies and conflicts of a given moment, nor will they focus on whom we should vote for in whatever the next election might be. But rather, I'm going to focus on the longer term issues that will continue to impact the 21st century Western world in our lifetimes. Thus, It is my hope these thoughts will be less dated. A second disclaimer. What I am offering for your consideration is not orthodox doctrine, but one pastor's perspective. There are truths that are so foundational that they are not open for debate and varied opinions if a person is to serve, for example, as an ordained minister or elder in the Presbyterian Church. People like me take ordination vows— proclaiming our commitment to those essential truths such as the Trinity, the authority of Scripture, the resurrection of Christ, etc. And if I disagree with any of those, I am obligated to renounce my ordination and resign my position. But it is acceptable for pastors and church members to disagree with one another on the issues we'll be talking about now, and we can still remain as part of one church. I am thus not speaking ex cathedra, the way a pope may claim infallibility for his words. Brother, these thoughts are offered to help stretch your thinking and start conversations together. I want to begin with a very emotionally charged issue that has been central in America's life for the past half century. Let's look objectively at what I will call the fallacies of the pro-abortion movement. The first fallacy, willfully committed by pro abortion advocates, is the claim that intentionally ending a child's life in the womb, or even during delivery, is not murder of a human being, but simply removal and disposal of fetal tissue. Decades ago, it may have been possible, in the absence of sophisticated medical instruments for scanning a child in utero, to believe that until birth, that child was not yet a person. But we now know without doubt that human life is present. Our prenatal wards fight to save the lives of children born months prematurely, and we know that long before the normal nine-month gestation ends, real life is there. Pro-abortionists defy science and reason when they deny a pre-born baby is human. They do so because the alternative would be to admit that they are committing murder. And of course, the Sixth Commandment clearly prohibits the willful taking of an innocent human life. The second fallacy demonstrated by pro-abortionists is the insistence that a woman has an inalienable and absolute right to her own body, including the disposition of a new life growing within her. This claim is spoken often by abortion advocates as if it is irrefutable. They have failed to read their Bibles. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, speaking in the context of the seriousness of sexual sin contrary to God's commands, says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This verse is an unmistakable refutation of the claim that a woman's body belongs exclusively to her we all, men and women alike, actually belong to our Creator, not to ourselves. He has the right to tell us what we are to do and not do, and he will hold us accountable for how we use our bodies. And the third fallacy of the pro-abortion advocates is the conviction that behaviors should be separated from consequences. The sexual revolution of the 20th century, making Safe birth control available and divorcing physical acts from relationships and responsibilities has been motivated by an attempt to avoid the consequences of unwanted or inconvenient pregnancies. The vast majority of abortions are committed on healthy babies by women, often encouraged by their male partners, who do not want to give birth. Eliminating a pregnancy is promoted as the easy and consequence-free solution. There are some very rare cases where an abortion may be the best of bad moral options within a Christian worldview. If the life of a pregnant mother is directly endangered, it may be necessary to kill the baby to save her. If a child has such profound birth defects that are detectable in the womb, such as an anencephalic baby having no brain, which would prevent anything like a recognizably human life. An abortion may be the correct moral choice, but in most abortions performed in clinics today, there are no such complications. Regrettably, the abortion industry has become profitable, deeply entrenched, and with influence over many politicians and judges and news media. Women and men who have participated in abortions will not find spiritual peace and relief from their guilt by rationalizing or denying what they've done. How blessed we are to have a God who is always ready to receive repentant sinners who will turn to him, acknowledge their sin, and ask for forgiveness. Mercy and grace are available, but the price is to face the truth and to grieve the life they wrongly took. Most who have been stained by abortion should talk with a Christian pastor or counselor to help work through their emotions and face up to their own responsibility. Number two in our survey of the blunders of the secular mind, let's address now the fallacies of socialism. The socialist ideal has taken many forms and is not new in human history. It is founded on an optimistic and naive understanding about human nature. Many utopian dreams and visions have emerged through the centuries, sometimes generated by people who thought of themselves as Christians but who fail to grasp some truths that prevent a utopian paradise of the imagination from succeeding. Socialism proclaims that all people should be equal, not just in opportunity, which is a profoundly Christian concept, but also in outcome. Socialist utopians envision a society and economy where everyone is equal and no one has more or less than others. It sounds attractive but it doesn't work. The problem is simple. Without incentives, people will not work hard. If every person is given everything they need, and yet they are prevented from achieving things they want beyond their basic needs, because that might cause inequality of results, then effort and labor and discipline are not rewarded. In most experiments in socialism through history, private property was not permitted. Everything was held in common. A few utopian colonies have been able to function for a short time if everyone willingly joins and shares the same lofty ideals, but they have never proven to work across multiple generations. The darkest dimensions of socialism arise from the darkest aspects of our imperfect, sinful nature. The vision for an equal society is nearly always imposed from above upon people, and what inevitably happens is that the ruling class— exempts itself from the restrictions put on everyone else. Power will always tend to be abused by those who acquire it. In its most horrific forms, socialism has morphed into national socialism, a.k.a. fascism, such as in Nazi Germany, and communism, an equally totalitarian and cruel oppression, such as in the Soviet Union and in contemporary North Korea, Cuba, and Venezuela. The pure idealism of socialism has never worked on any large scale anywhere in human history. Its fatal flaws are a naivete about human nature and a blindness to the dangers of unchecked powers among the rulers and the inevitable corruption that comes. Since all people are sinners, all governments are controlled by sinners." Corrupt government systems nearly always result in economic disasters. Margaret Thatcher's truism holds, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. It assumes that humans are identical, like interchangeable machine parts or a herd of cows or flock of sheep with no unique minds and personalities to distinguish them. But God has made us with individual abilities, aspirations, and longings the greatest advances for the betterment of mankind have come because people can enjoy the fruit of their own labors, have secure individual property rights, and have the freedom to develop and grow. And now, third, we will talk about the fallacy of simplistic political labels. The two terms in most common usage in Western society today are conservative and progressive. Without careful definition of what those two terms mean and what the people those labels are attached to actually believe on specific issues, the terminology can be misleading and prevent meaningful debate. The two adjectives have been around for a long time, but they are constantly morphing and changing. Over a century ago, Teddy Roosevelt was referred to as a progressive, In fact, after he lost the Republican nomination in 1912, he branded his new opposition third party the Progressive Party. Yet Roosevelt would be horrified by and would shun many of the policies of current progressives. In the 1950s and 1960s, congressional opposition to the Civil Rights Movement was led by Southern Democrats who were labeled conservatives. Yet today, the same party would be horrified to be branded with that term, and nearly all who are today, given the brand conservative, would likewise disavow the so-called Jim Crow laws of the South of 60 years ago. The two words conservative and progressive are relative to specific times and issues, not reflecting any absolute ideal. Let's look carefully at those words. To conserve means to keep things as they are. But are the things we are trying to conserve good or harmful? It depends. Not all that we now have should be retained, and not all that we now have should be abandoned. On the other side, to progress means to change with an end to improvement or growth. But are the changes we intend to make going to actually lead us forward or backward? Again, it depends. The inherent danger in the attitude of conserving is a blindness to self-examination, settling for the status quo without willingness to improve. Those who are knee-jerk conservatives on everything will prevent changes that might benefit others. The inherent danger in the attitude of progressing is that it can, in a quest for continual change, cause damage, perhaps unintended, to things that were working— In other words, the change can go too far. The caricature of the extreme conservative is a wealthy and comfortable person who, as long as they have theirs, doesn't care about the have-nots. The caricature of the extreme progressive is a revolutionary or anarchist who wants to tear everything down but doesn't know what to put in its place. The world was alerted to the dangers of an unchecked progressivism, of course, over two centuries ago— when the French Revolution replaced an oppressive monarchy with an even more oppressive reign of terror led by the revolutionaries. If you ask me, are you conservative or progressive, I must reply, on which issues? I believe a Christian should not totally adopt one or the other extreme and follow it slavishly, Some areas of life and society need to be preserved, others need to be improved, nor should a Christian make their preferred political party their ultimate, unquestioning allegiance. Because we hold dual citizenship as believers in Christ. We are citizens of an earthly country, but also citizens of the spiritual kingdom of God. So, we need to remember that our highest loyalty and obedience is always to our Lord and Savior. Since political parties change over time, and since they are led by and consist of fallible human beings who can sin and lose their way, no party is worthy of our absolute and eternal obedience. Human society has a constant challenge— of how to find the right balance between the competing impulses of conservative and progressive. Picture a pendulum, a weight suspended on a chain or a rope. When it is still, it rests at a midpoint. But when it is pushed, it moves one way for a time, and then ultimately will move back past the midpoint in the other direction. It's hard to stop a pendulum Once it starts in motion, people of differing viewpoints try to push the pendulum in their preferred direction. Maybe they even build their lives and careers around the identity of being a pusher in a certain direction, but their success causes the pendulum to swing past the midpoint too far in the other direction, and then a counter-movement may begin. That is why politicians, parties, and movements who may think they are making a situation better can actually cause unintended harm by going to an excess. Well, in our second installment of The Blunders of the Secular Mind, we will look further at critical issues our world is facing, including education, gender, marriage, science, and history. I hope you can join me as we continue our discussion, and may God help us to open our eyes to see ourselves and the world as it really is, and through his perspective.